Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Tipsy Tennis Podcast. This week's episode, I am in Atlantic Beach Tennis and Pickleball Center in Long Island, New York, playing a game, several games of pool with the director of tennis over here. Uh, he has trained athletes, tennis players to, the, to some of the highest levels, working with uh, players from 150 in the world to 500 in the world, traveling around, being a grinder just with all these guys, even playing some of the tournaments when he can. But without further ado, I would like to introduce Eric Morales. Thank you for coming on the pod. Thank you, Adam. I'm excited. I'm excited for this one. You, you have, a, I'm sure you have a, a lot of stories. I've heard a bunch. I'm probably gonna listen to them again. Playing a game of pool, what would you say your level of pool is? My better level of tennis? pool? Nah. No, I'm a better tennis player than pool player. <laughs> But yeah, I've played a couple of tournaments here and there, but not not as not as good as I want to be. You want to break? You want to do the honors? Sure. Uh, how did you get started playing tennis? What's your earliest? I memory? I actually compared to all the tennis players and probably yourself. I don't know how old you were when you started playing, but I started playing when I was six years old, and that's pretty late. I have my uh, brother. My two younger brothers that uh, started playing at the age of two and a half, three. So you're, you're the oldest one. Out of I'm all the oldest one. So uh, you're like the guinea pig? Yes. <clears throat> I have my, uh, well, my dad was a tennis player. Um, and he was a big tennis player and I had no choice. He made me play tennis and that was, that was it. Mm -hmm. And my dad was my best friend when I was growing up. And throughout the years until two and a half years ago, he was still my best friend and still involved in tennis at 80 years old. Still was teaching a little bit, still kept going. Um, yeah, and it's things that happen in life. <laughs> uh, was your dad your coach when you were growing up? My dad was my coach. My dad was my only coach. Very strict coach. Um, and then uh, <clears throat> as I was growing up, finally at the age of uh, 14, he uh, took me to Boletary for and I was there for about two, three weeks, and he was very unhappy with the way uh, the training was there. Uh, and he was very old school, so everything had to be like the way he wanted it done. And he didn't approve of it, so he pulled me out right away. Mm -hmm. uh, during the time there, I pl I've uh, played, played with Michael Chang. I played a little bit with, uh, with uh, Jim Courier at the time when he was there and uh, a couple of other players that... This had to be, what, during the 80s? During this, the 80s. This had to yeah. be like the best time to be a... Oh, the, the, the best academy. time to be there. You had, um, I... Um, Agassi was probably around there, was a kid at that time. Maybe not a kid, but he was like... A, Agassi was already, uh, already up there. He was training, uh, practicing there uh, when, whenever he was around. I remember when I was uh, not by the time I was nine, I was already playing um, a lot of big junior tournaments. And I remember when um, the U uh, U.S. Open, the Louis Armstrong Stadium, first opened up. Mm -hmm. I, <clears throat> I happened to be one of the first people to play on the Louis Armstrong Stadium. I actually did an exhibition there with uh, Vitas Gerolitis. Um, I also uh, hit a little bit with Stephen Stockton. At the time, he was one of the uh, top four, top five tennis players in the world that had the fastest serve during that time. Mm. And uh, I, I was Is this little. What rackets were they using at the time? Oh, I was, I was still using my Wilson Jack Kramer. The Jack Kramer? I was rackets? using a Jack Kramer at that time. <clears throat> I, 
And, uh, well, we got uh, first year of the Open there. Uh, I got, uh, uh, they said, whoever can return Stephen Stockton's serve, uh, you get free tickets to the finals. Mm -hmm. I went up there after so many people were trying. I split step into that return to serve, hit it back, and could have been a framer, could have been something, but I, I returned that serve. Hey. And I got those tickets. I was, it was the, I, I was excited. I was happy. It was like... You know, and I think more importantly, I was, uh, it was more to uh, keep my dad happy more than anything. As I was growing up, I hated tennis. Mm -hmm. I hated it. Tennis was like work, chore. I mean, it wasn't fun for me. And uh, the only thing that I enjoyed was that I spent a lot of time with my dad. Mm -hmm. And that's what made me want to keep playing tennis. Um, a lot of players out there, I'd say, you guys know me and you've been with me and you see that um, people that know me know that I'm a real, real pain in the butt when I teach people because I push everybody to be better than what they are. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe in that there's, a, there's such a thing that you can't be good or you can't make it because I think that's, that's your own free will. If you want to make, do, make something of yourself, um, you will. I was a player that uh, had to practice seven days a week I had to play every day, seven days a week. I quit playing for one day, and I was a total beginner again because uh, I was one of those, play those people that was not athletic. Mm -hmm. I, I, I felt like I had two left feet. Mm -hmm. So if it took one player uh, two hours to learn something, it took me a month to learn something. Mm -hmm. So I was not athletic. It's like with everything that I do now. I don't quit at anything. I keep trying until I'm probably like the best at what I can do. Was there a lot of pressure from your dad to, for you to be good at tennis or just to Oh, play? there was a lot of pressure. A lot what, of pressure. Was it this, what about your brothers? Did they, were they uh, in your shadow or, you know, how did, how did your the, approach or their approach? Uh, well, my, my sister, my sister was uh, also, a, uh, she started playing tennis at about nine, ten years old, uh, a few years after me because, uh, you know, back then a lot of uh, men were very chauvinistic and women have to be in the kitchen and the guys mm -hmm. have to, Go and work, and that was, that was pretty much my dad's attitude. Then he started teaching my sister, and then he came to a point where my sister was playing for about a, a year of tennis, and by the time we were uh, 12, because she's uh, 11 months older than me, she used to beat me. <laughs> and I was a good player, but she used to beat me, and it's kind of Our embarrassing to say. Yeah. You know, she picked up, picked it up fast. And at the time, I, I was already at the age of 12. I was playing in, in the 14s, 14s and 16s mm -hmm. uh, in, the, in the East. So uh, for her to beat me, she was a good player, but he, my dad did not take the time to put her in tournaments or get mm -hmm. her to play. It was like, all right, here, you're playing tennis. You're spending some time with us. That's it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's funny because the other day we were sitting here, we were talking on how... Whenever we worked on anything, it was like, all right, Eric, he gave me 50 backhands to hit and gave my sister 10 backhands to hit. And it's just, okay, go pick up balls. And he spent all that time with me. So, but, but in the end, it, it paid out well. I uh, started playing a few uh, professional tournaments at the age of uh, 15. Um, uh, that's when I actually started playing on tour. Um, back then, there were satellites, not uh, futures Future, or yeah. challengers, uh, which 
I kind of liked it because it was a, a tour of tournaments that you had to play and get invited to the challenging tournament where we got, we got uh, only the best, uh, the, be the people with the best results out of the four tournaments got, uh, out of the three or four tournaments got to play in, uh, in the invitational one. So, mm -hmm. um, and it was, I think back then, tennis was a little less competitive than what it is now. I mean, if we have, uh, yeah, I don't for sure. Now, now, it's like kids are, are it's, they make it a career like so early on at like 12 years old. You are a professional tennis player. Everybody stops what they're doing. The parents are all over it. No, it's a, it's a common like stereotype, the overbearing tennis parent that's like really driving it. And, and I, I had one, one guy come over here. He used to be, I believe, one of the coaches from Martina Navatilova, but not the main coach, one of the coaches that she had. And he had a son. And he came over here two years ago to talk to him. His son was 10 years old. Oh, he was already uh, at 10. Uh, he was about 5'3", five, 5'4". Five, and the dad said that when he was born, the decision was made that kid was only going to turn pro. He wasn't going to go to school. He wasn't going to do anything. Everything was going to be homeschooling. Most of those kids, most of the parents that want their kids to turn pro have that decision made before their kids are born. How do you feel about that, having two daughters that play tennis but aren't nearly as like, competitive as you know we were growing up? I love them to death, but tennis is not for them. I got divorced early on when they were little kids, uh, little girls. For them to play tennis, it was not in their future or, or anything that I planned. Because like, like I said, when I, when I teach friend, a sibling, a girlfriend, a wife or whatever, I'm not anything to them but a tennis coach or a tennis instructor when we're on the court. Uh -huh. So uh, I didn't want that. I didn't want that type of relationship with my daughters. You know, my time with my daughters, I wanted to spend it with them. And if they wanted to play tennis, we would play tennis. But uh, we just hit the ball around. I wouldn't teach them. They would hack the ball around. When I started coaching on tour, I took one, one kid who um, came from Republic of Georgia. His name was George Margaret Spelly. Took this kid on, coached him for six months before we went on tour. Already a very nice player, very good player. He was number two from the Republic of Georgia. And he's, by that time in the juniors, he's competed against Murat Safin. And you know, Murat Safin was number two in the world at one point. Mm -hmm. And him and Murat Safin had a, uh, you know, uh, he beat in the, uh, Murat Safin in the juniors uh, four to five times that they played. Kid was a great tennis player. Try, he had no money. And I tried to get a few sponsors for him. So I had, and at the time, during the time, I was uh, over at uh, Forest Park. Mm -hmm. and I had the tennis courts, the concession to the tennis courts over there. And I started training him there, and most of the people there liked the way he played. They loved the way he played. And people said, you know what, we'll do a collection, we'll do something, and we'll try to help the kid out. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, so we put some money together, and we, like you said, going from one, one place to another, and what we did was we took the schedule of all the futures, and we drove from one place to the other, from New York to Godfrey, Illinois, from Godfrey, Illinois to uh, Colleen, uh, to Colleen, Texas, from Texas back to Tallahassee, Florida. Mm. And I think in that one summer, I must have put 45,000 miles in my car. 
Wow. Going from one tournament to the other. By the end of three months, three and a half months, I picked up about eight or nine players. Mm -hmm. And through there, I, I picked up uh, Barry Kaufman, which was a very nice player. I ended up meeting uh, Chris Condon, who now is a big real estate guy in, down in Florida, but still plays tennis. Mm -hmm. His ranking went up all the way, at, all the way up to, uh, I think, like 300 in the world. Mm -hmm. At 320, I coached LeVar Jackson for a while there. He was one of the highest ranked players, like 140 in the world that we've worked with. But uh, on the tour, it's, it's very, very tough to make it uh, unless you're, you're born with a very rich family or mm -hmm. if you have a good trust fund, there's, there's no way you're going to make it unless you, don't, you have any money. Like when, like everybody knows Michael Chang's story, his father sold everything, got rid of his houses and investments, and invested $2 million in his son to become a professional player. A lot of players come out here wanting to be professional, yeah. but they have no idea how long it takes. In Florida, you've been to Florida, you've seen the yes. majority of these tennis instructors down there. You have a lot of pros over there that are on tour and they're trying to make money on the side. So they're out there hustling for 20, 30, 40 dollars an hour just to hit with people so they can make money to go back on tour. One player, over, one tennis instructor over here, phenomenal player, phenomenal. Back in the early 80s, he's played against Jimmy Connors. He's played against uh, Bjorn Borg. He's played against all the greats. And he could never make it because he didn't have any money. Who's your favorite player from the 90s? 90s. Or at least give me like a top three. Uh, well, my, my idol's always been Jimmy. Mm -hmm. And I know uh, a lot of people will uh, say, oh, Jimmy Connors was this or that. Uh, I like Jimmy when people hated Jimmy. Mm -hmm. And my dad was Jimmy Connors. Uh, Jimmy Connors had a bodyguard, and his bodyguard was my dad's student. Mm -hmm. So we, uh, I was friends with <clears throat> with his bodyguard, but Jimmy was, uh, you know, how they say he was an asshole, and he was, yeah. he was, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you, how many I, times have you met him? Uh, Jimmy? Yeah. I used to see him all the time. I mean, you see pictures, I, I have yeah. pictures of Jimmy and I over here at the club from when, since the age of nine mm -hmm. or younger, I think like six years old. My dad used to teach him, and then um, one player that I, I always wanted to hit a tennis ball with, never got a chance, so it was Jimmy. Jimmy, oh, you I, never got to hit with him? No, I never got to hit with him. A few years ago, many years ago, when I had to be like a little kid, maybe like six, seven years old, John McEnroe came to Prospect Park for like a thing, so I got to hit a couple balls with John. Oh, my story with John. <laughs> my story with John. Oh, I'm sure there's a lot out there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I remember I was... I believe 1981, 1982, I one of those years. I uh, was supposed to do an exhibition with uh, Vitas Gerolaitis on the Louis Armstrong Stadium at the U.S. Open. And I played with him. We were hitting around, everything. And then all of a sudden, and that was the year that John McEnroe was number one in the world. I was supposed to do an exhibition with, uh, with John McEnroe. And there was a few thousand people in the stadium, and John is talking on, a, on the mic. I'm standing right next to him, and I yank on his shorts, and I said, when are we going to hit balls? <laughs> I was nine years old, and he comes and tells me, he looks at me in front of a few thousand people there, 
And he tells me, why don't you come back in 20 years and ask me that? <laughs> so the first year that I played qualies, uh, I ran into him. And I, he goes, oh, you're playing? I said, I'm playing this year. And he goes, um, Oh, wait, you put, played qualies in yeah. the US Open? Yeah. You played and them? I played it. Oh, wow. And, and then huge. when I ran into him in the uh, locker room, he goes, you're playing this year? And he goes to me, I, I go to him, yes, I am. And if I qualify and I make it to the main round, I'm going to beat you. <laughs> we used to run into each other over at uh, Randall's Island because uh -huh. he was yeah. there a couple of times. Well, I mean, his, and, name is, his name is on it. <laughs> and whenever I saw him there, we, we have like a mutual like little head nod and keep going about our way. Oh, we so you... really don't get along. <laughs> We really don't get along, and uh, he, he knows me very well. I played it. I played his his uh, niece. I played Victoria McEnroe. That's Patrick McEnroe's daughter in like this UTR tournament, where it was co-ed, and uh, I won the first set. Second set, I like I sprained my ankle like, terribly, like really, really bad. I just didn't want to. I didn't want to like walk off. Like I didn't want to walk off. I'm like I'm not gonna come and and. Uh, like no offense, but like lose to a 16-year-old girl. Like I'm just that's just not gonna happen. So I ended up, I ended up playing the rest of the set. I finished the set. I didn't move. I wasn't running. I couldn't walk, and I ended up winning the set. And then after the match, I'm like, just take the win. I can't play. I can't play tomorrow anyway. And so I'm like, just put like six four six four something like that. She goes, tells the director it was six one six zero. Just to bump up her own uh, rating of whatever. Well, I don't care. That, that, that's what I, uh, I was coaching a couple of guys on tour when I took my players to the Futures, and there were, weren't that many players that would, you know, ask if I could get in mm -hmm. because, you know, you have like three, four hundred players that show up to the Futures to sign in. And the sign in at that time used to be from four to six, wherever you went. Six o'clock, didn't matter how many players were there, didn't sign in. They close the doors, that was it. Then you're waiting at the hotel room and you're waiting for them to post who got in, who didn't got in, the draw, what time you were playing in the morning. Sometimes they would put it in, at, put it in by uh, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, sometimes by one o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you had a match at nine o'clock or eight o'clock in the morning, no, nine o'clock in the morning. Go to sleep at one o'clock in the morning after you find out if you're playing tomorrow, if you got in, or you move on to the next tournament. So uh, I would get in, and uh, if my players would lose, I would win my match, and I would tell the player, just tell them whatever score it was, and I would move on with my players because I wasn't there for me. Now, if, I, if it was a tournament where uh, there were like players left out, I would uh, pull myself out so they could pull, pull the next player in. And we spent hours uh, driving, moving around. I picked up players along the way to help them out because uh, on tour, when you start coaching players, players need players. You need you for, need a team. You yeah, need, you need right. You need more. With, you need yeah, you need more hitters, expenses. more players. Right. So I started picking up like six more players, seven more players, I'm, I'm, and I'm moving them around, hustling them around, taking them with me, uh, helping them out. Pretty much at my expense, helping them out, mm -hmm. and because I had one player that. He was my main goal. Early 2004 or 2003, I had a player, uh, Victor Susky, a kid that uh, never played tennis before in his life. His father was an eye surgeon. Never hit a tennis ball, never. And it's a bit unfair 
because it's who you know. Victor Susky never played a junior tournament in his life, never played. Seven months later, after I gave him a tennis racket, he was on tour. To get into a future, you have to go through merit points. You have to either have a ITF ranking, a ranking from your country, or now we have UTR, but back then you had regular uh, rankings from your state or from your section, and this kid had nothing. But when I took the kid out, we had some sort of a code where you know, I'm out, I'm coaching a player, can you please put him in? And they would put my player in. Victor, in his first tournament, grinded out, played it, and uh, lost in a third set match. First round, first match. Uh, and for a player like him to go up against a player who was probably like 1,200 in the world, that was big. Second tournament, he wins the first round, wins the second round, wins the third round. I mean, loses in the third round. Mm-hmm. Before, uh, third round, one round before qualifying. But four months, go, four months down the line, kid is already qualifying. He has a couple ATP points. He's getting in on his own now. He's getting in on his own now. But again, it's, it's who you know, how you do things. I'm not saying whether we bought a couple of wild cards here and there. I think it's going to be another three, four years before we start having those legends again. I would say it's even longer. You think it would, would be longer? I would say at least a decade. Because think about it for, like, let's say this is not going to happen, but let's take somebody who at least has one Grand Slam, Alcaraz. If he wins every single Grand Slam for the next five years, he's going to be tied with these guys. And that's if he wins every single Grand Slam each year, which is... I, I don't see that happening because no, they, uh, they are killing the kid. At some point, things are just out of your control. Like if he plays mm-hmm. against a guy like one of the big guys, Kyrgios, Medvedev, Hachinov, Tsitsipas, Zverev, who's just served, like they, he, they just play him on a day that they're serving lights out or anybody on tour for that, for that matter. Like there's just some things that you can't really do. And, the, and I think the records that like the big three have set are literally never going to be broken because boundaries on like the technological side and like the scientific side of just of information and knowledge it's, it's crossed a line that it's impossible to go back. And like Pandora's box has been opened and this is what tennis is gonna be like for the next, until we die. <laughs> but we say this now and yet the game is gonna naturally evolve into something else. Uh, whether that's a rule change or the discovery of some material or technology that they can put in rackets or into whatever. <laughs> I think it's going to have to be slowed down. It already has been slowed down with the balls and the way they're surfacing the courts because it has gone so, so fast. And so we see the game, the, the, the organization, organizers trying to slow down the game on that end. But on the other end, you have pr- upwards pressure from like the racket companies, the, even the shoe companies. I was looking at the review of the new ASIC shoe and like even the material and the shape that they do it they, they make the sole out of, it adds more quicker response time. Right. When you want to, let's say you run, hit a forehand, and then to jump back into the center of the court, right. it's even coming down to like the response time of the material in the shoes. And like everything, there's this upward pressure to speed everything up, and then this backwards pressure from everything else. It's like, whoa, we got to slow this down because this is right. getting out of control. 
What I hear from a lot of people is like tennis, ten, watching tennis now is like watching people play a video game. It's, it's unrealistic. You could talk about baseball players, you could talk, talk about boxers, you could talk about MMA fighters. But I remember when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, soccer players were the ultimate athlete. And I used to tell people, no, tennis players are. For me, it's water And then in once in 2004 or 2000, at one of the World Cups, somebody asked them who, uh, you know, soccer player, and somebody said, no, the ultimate athlete is a tennis player. You know, I, I think I agree with that. I think every sport, and it's like grueling and against all the odds to do it, no matter what sport you pick. And I was actually talking to like a ping, uh, this guy, he used to be a professional ping pong player. Mm -hmm. And he's like, yeah, like ping pong is so much more difficult than tennis. Uh, it's like, you know, the same, there's six different ways to do the same slice. Let's say you do a backhand slice. Like there's, in tennis, there's only one way to do a backhand slice and that's just to hit a backhand slice. But to get that same spin effect on a ping pong table, let's say like off the serve or like with a shot, there's like a, multiple different ways and it's not good for TV because the viewers can't see what's actually going on. And then it's like, like the amount of steps that you're taking, it's quick. It's short distance. I'm like, I'm not knocking you that it's, uh, it's not difficult, but as you said it, I think the boundary really lies on not which sport is more difficult, but which sport is creating the best athlete. And mm -hmm. soccer players are really good at with their feet, but tennis players are basically just as good at with their feet. And then to throw in the, the foot coordination, the hand coordination, the, wow. the, the, the chest mesh is going along with it as well. And it's all, and it's all individual. You, there's no manager, there's no coach that's it's like feeding you. you like, on the court. It's just you on the court. And even now, what they allowed with like these coaching breaks, or like they're allowing coaching on tour right now. Certain tournaments. Certain tournaments. The coaches have access to all the stats. So even the strategy for players can change mid-match to like, you know, let's say for example, zero to three shots, this person is winning more, more points. Four to nine shots, this person is winning more points. And then more than nine shots, this person is winning more right. points. So if you're like, if you're the coach and you see that and you call your, your, your player over for, you know, a quick 10, 15 second confrontation, you're telling them it's like, you're winning more points as, a long, as the points get longer. Try to extend yeah. his points because he's making more errors or blah, 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 blah. Or these points, every time the points get long, he, the other guy is winning most of them. So try to keep the sh points short because that's, what you, what, that's what's working right now. And let's find that strategy. And even, you know, even tennis is, uh, I think that's the best way tennis is going to evolve moving into this like next era is being able to like, yes, it's just like smacking the ball left and right. But the other part of it is taking this like data based strategy to, to doing it. And you can even see like with IBM Watson when they were sponsoring US Open, <laughs> it's like if this player gets their first serve in at least 80% of the time, they have a 85% chance of winning the yeah. match. Like a statistic yeah. like that, it's not guaranteed that you know, you yeah. get 80, well, you hit 80% well, for a serve, that, but that is very key right there because you know what it's like let's say they let the players bring in a pad mm -hmm. and they look at all the stats mm -hmm. and then they start the next the next game or the next set puts them at an advantage and the game changes but it's also, more interesting the other person has access to the same information yeah. though 
So right. now it's like, I know that you know that I know that you know. Exactly. And so blah, blah, So blah, it blah, balances blah. things out. Yeah. And I, th I think it's, and, and to put it into perspective like that, it's, this, it's the best athlete. Not only is it becoming, it's the mental toughness that I think tennis players have a huge advantage over than most other sports, but the fact, like in, in order to execute the mental part of it, you need to be 100% efficient in the physical part, which is hard enough on its own. And right. so for the, for the elite few who can reach 100% capacity on the physical end, that is like, a, that's, a, that's a given. Like we don't even consider that anymore at some point because but, if you don't have that, you're not even here. But that's the only thing that's gonna bring back a steady top five players with yeah. the, the analysis and the physical and all that. One thing that really is gonna separate the big three from any other era, the longevity of the players, the amount of times like Nadal, he was out for a couple of years, like mid, mid, well, mid we, career, Federer was out for like a couple of years, Djokovic, he's been rock steady pretty much the entire time, but they, they have a certain longevity that allows them to do these things. These other players, we can't, we, how many times have we heard it? What, it's like, what? this player's amazing, but they don't have the consistency to do it for, dec for a decade or even but, two years. Once we lose Nadal, once we lose Djokovic, once we lose those guys, we are in an era where we're just going to have different names coming up all the time. Yep, 100%. And I firmly believe, like you said, technology is going to have to take over so we could balance it out. Athleticism and technology leveraging the data leveraging all these yeah and and the cool thing especially now with in this like era of ai the data is becoming so much deeper than we ever could have possibly oh. imagined even like that what ai is amazing for is finding patterns and so it'll find patterns if you just feed it a bunch of just garbage data in an unorganized fashion it'll just find patterns randomly but and it doesn't know what it, what it means. It doesn't know if it's a correlation, a causation. It doesn't. It has no idea what it is. But it found this pattern, and then we use this as a tool to look like, oh wow, I found this pattern. What does this pattern mean? And then it just uncovers this entire like deep analysis into into everyday approach. And it can be used for tennis, obviously. It's, it's used in other in other realms, but the the depth in which we're really understanding things on a quantitative level is completely reshaping the approach to anything that we do, whether it's sports, whether it's business, whether it's personal, whether even if it's art, you know, something that you wouldn't even consider right. really quantifiable, it's breaking into that as well. We, you know, it's, it's AI has found patterns to create a painting or yeah. something like that. And it's just patterns. It's just learning from what we can do, and it's uh, it's very powerful. It's and the hardest part about it in the in the realm of tennis is that now everybody has access to it. Oh, that sucks. It used <laughs> to be only the top players have access to it because they're the only ones who could afford it, but now it's become so widespread accessible that everybody has access to it. So there's there's no more knowledge disadvantage that the lower players have because they know they know the same amount as the top players where yeah. it wasn't like that in the but, past but the one thing that will never change what who controls the top seats 
I've told you once before to read that book, Tennis Confidential. But the, but the seeds are based on the ranking. Once you have the top three, they control the chair. So, I, I, like I said, it's like, read that book. It's very, very important to read that book and for people to know what happens inside the ATP tour, because that's one thing that would never change. How, where the seeds are placed? Who's on top half, who's who, on bottom? Who lets who in? How they protect themselves from letting up, up and coming players that can beat them. Like, you know how Creos complaining and saying how these guys are controlling everything and doing everything. He's not lying. I mean, at the end of the day, the, the tournaments, they're trying to sell tickets. They're trying that, to get that's view, it. viewership because that's what pays the bills. Yes. That's what pays their salaries. That's what literally keeps the entire ecosystem running. Right. Because if they're not making money, like the entire industry is going to die. And Well, we have a new demon coming up. What's that? Pickleball. It will Pick, never replace Pickleball is the new demon. Tennis players are becoming pickleball players. Tennis directors are becoming pickleball directors. They're direct. And the thing is, though, that's only in the U.S. It's the fastest growing sport in the U.S. It's and the only reason it's in the U.S. is because the U.S. has the money, has the capital to grow this sport. Other countries uh, don't have the same uh, infrastructure and the same uh, you know, economic benefit and so I don't I think it, it's it's trendy right now but I don't think it has a it's gonna it's sit the same way because like badminton for example on, I would say much more tougher than than pickleball and yet that's very popular in like Asian countries um, not too much a little bit European but it's very popular in Asia but it never got its widespread in the West whereas like something like pickleball or paddle tennis is more popular here but is going to stay contained rather well, than hitting the global is, level. What is the, uh, the number one player in the women's pickleball? Is a 15-year-old girl? Oh, yeah. I, the, and she was, used to be a tennis player. The thing that I hate about pickleball is in order to go professional in pickleball, you need to be a good athlete. In order to be professional in literally any other sport, you need to dedicate your entire livelihood, your entire life to it. And so like, yes, right. you're gonna be a good athlete by default, but it's much, 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 right. much more than being a good athlete. And pickleball is right. just like, who's athletic, who can like. But somehow, it's a joke. Somehow, it's killing tennis. I don't think it would kill tennis. Like, I don't think it's taking away from viewership. Oh. Uh, a viewership, no, not now. But now all of a sudden you have what, what's coming up in April. You have Michael Chang, you have Agassi, you have all these players doing an exhibition for pickleball. Oh, they are? Yeah. You didn't know that? I mean... It, it is being... It's going all over. It's, companies are buying it. Like but, how, much, how much is Agassi getting paid to I, show up? I know. But once you have those players playing... Kyrgios bought a team in Miami. Osaka bought a team. So, so if those players are playing, those players are sponsoring teams, what do you think is going to happen? No matter how much 
commercial uh, pressure you have and media attention, at the end of the day, the thing that's gonna keep it sustainable is the community. As a club owner, I like what Pickleball has done for me, but I'll always pick tennis over Pickleball. Mm -hmm. But I see it coming. The only issue that arises is when Pickleball players take over tennis courts. If they built their own tennis, like their own centers, nobody would care. They'd be like, okay, go do your thing. But, but it's because they're taking up, at least in the Northeast, valuable court time that is difficult to come by. I've been, it's, it's not easy to get a court in a lot of places recently. Winter, in not winter, summer, not summer. They're, here's the thing, they're entering the tennis space and they're trying to disturb it and take over things. So of course they're gonna be met with pushback. We're, like, tennis players are not gonna just let them walk in and, and, and do their thing. And, and I think that's where the animosity really stems from. Because if they just, Pickleball has been around for what, a decade more? No, Pickleball actually started around in the 60s. In the 60s. And they were always yeah. doing their own thing and it's because it's an economic advantage to huh. turn your tennis center into a pickleball and tennis uh, center. Uh, you know what? Because you can I, rent out two courts for the same pr for double the price for per hour for the pickleball rather than. I would not give up any more courts for pickleball. I gave up two courts to build six six pickleball courts. Those were newly really yeah. redone as well. The courts that you yeah you would just redone the tennis courts and then you're like okay take it down. Let's build pickleball courts. But I, I would not do any more. I would not convert my tennis courts to pickleball courts. It's counterproductive for tennis players. Oh, when I was playing, when I was growing up, I would play ping pong with my left hand because it would fuck up my tennis with my right. No, it's like... I'm it's actually like, really good with my left hand in ping pong. It's counterproductive for tennis players for the reason that split step is hindrance on uh, in pickleball. When you're on your toes, it's different. You're not at an advantage. You're, most of the time when you're flat, you're better off. Smaller steps, which for tennis, it's, we're always very agile. We want to run, we want to sprint, we want to move. Mm -hmm. And for pickleball, that's uh, counterproductive. It's interesting how that's gonna take play with a uh, majority of the tennis players that are taking it over. Well, that will be it for the Tipsy Tennis Podcast for this episode featuring Eric Morales from out of Atlantic Beach Tennis and Pickleball Center, Long Island, New York. Eric, thank you again for taking the time. It's been uh, fun shooting some pool around, talking about uh, all things tennis, having a drink, kicking it back. Anything uh, you want to say? Well, it was a pleasure having you here and talking with you and uh, very much appreciated. Work hard, practice hard, practice like you want to be number one in the world and uh, use it to get a good tennis scholarship. On the count of three, we're going to say stay tipsy. All right? All right. One, two, three. Stay, stay tipsy. tipsy. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Tipsy Tennis Podcast. If you enjoy it, please show brother some love on Instagram at Tipsy Tennis Podcast. That is the handle I post pretty regularly over there. So if you want to stay up to date, you can find me there. I've got some really, really, really cool interviews coming up in the next few weeks. 
So please stay tuned for those. Please follow me on all my socials. That's Instagram, Twitter, and I've got a Discord server. You can find the link in the description. But until next time, my friends, stay tipsy.